my take on murders. Hello everyone. My name is Jocelyn and first of all, thank you so much for checking out my podcast, My Take on Murder. This is my first episode, so I'm going to lead off with a case that I first heard about when I was around 11 years old. As long as I can remember, I've been into true crime. As a child, I liked watching the news, movies based on real life. I read every one of Anne Rule's books as a teenager. My mom owned them all. And if you don't know Anne Rule and like true crime, you gotta check out her books. But yeah, I'll never forget watching this case unfold on the news with my mom. It was crazy. The crimes were committed close to where I lived, in Ontario, between Toronto and Niagara Falls, basically. And like, Canada was a safe country back then. We didn't have serial killers. Like, that shit didn't happen here. So this was huge news, not just in my area, but across Canada. And the fact that it happened just a short drive away made it terrifying to me. It was the first time, like, holy shit, this stuff can actually happen. It can happen here. It can happen to anyone. The victims were young women and teenage girls, and I was a young girl. And I just remember being both horrified and captivated. Shout out to my mom who helped kickstart my love for true crime, but I think this was the one case that really sucked me in. So it just seemed fitting to start my true crime podcast here with this case. Even though it's a doozy, like it's a lot, it's gross, it's awful, it's disturbing, and the ending will probably fucking anger you. So yeah, just a heads up about that. So if you haven't guessed already, today I'm going to be talking about Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamoka, two names that turn my fucking stomach. These two are also known as the Schoolgirl Killers and the Ken and Barbie Killers due to their blonde hair and good looks, and they made themselves known to the public back in 1993, but their evil deeds dated back to 1987. So let's start from the beginning with Paul, who I think, and I think many will agree with me, that between him and Carla, Paul is actually the lesser of the two evils. And when I say evil, I mean, I don't even know how you could refer to these monsters as humans. Oh, and um, trigger warning, this case involves rape and sexual assault, a lot of it, and it's really disturbing, but I will try to keep the details to a minimum while still giving you enough to just know how horrific these fuckers were. But yeah, let's start with Paul. So Paul Kenneth Bernardo was born August 27th, 1964 in Scarborough, Ontario, which is part of the GTA or Greater Toronto Area, so it's like a suburb of Toronto. He was born to parents Kenneth and Marilyn, who had moved to Scarborough when Kenneth, who was a successful accountant, got a job at a large accounting firm. After moving, Marilyn gave birth to three children, David, Deborah, and Paul was the youngest. Now, I know I said that between him and Carla, he was the lesser of two evils, but when it came to their family and upbringing, Paul was almost a poster child for a serial killer in the making. This guy's childhood was pretty rough. And while he's a piece of shit that doesn't deserve any sympathy, it's not really that surprising that he turned out the way he did. 
I guess when his parents moved to Scarborough, their relationship turned pretty sour. Kenneth turned out to be a real piece of shit. He physically abused his wife and sexually abused his young daughter. Actually, and this is fucked, the day that Paul was being arraigned on criminal charges for the crimes that we're going to get to here, that same day, in the same courthouse, his father was being sentenced for sexually molesting his own daughter, Paul's sister, back when she was a child. I guess she finally reported him, uh, apparently after starting to suspect that he was starting to abuse her daughter, his granddaughter. So sick. But yeah, the same day, in the same courthouse, one is being arraigned on rape and murder charges, while the other is being sentenced for sexually molesting his own daughter. So fucked up. And Paul's dad wasn't the only piece of shit. His mom was trash too. She apparently was aware of the sexual abuse to her daughter, but instead of protecting her kids, she became vile and reclusive. She basically neglected her kids. Instead, she was emotionally and verbally abusive. Actually, also, when Paul was like 15 or 16, he found out that his father wasn't his biological father at all, that his mom had had an affair, and Paul was the product of that affair. And he found this out in the shittiest of ways, when his mother, after fighting with his dad, went to Paul and just threw a picture of the man at him, told him he was a bastard child, and then proceeded to refer to him as that from then on. So after that and from then on, Paul openly hated his mother. He always referred to her as a whore to everyone, to his friends, to her face. And this is something that is seen often in serial killers that prey on women, that enjoy a dominance over women. There is often abuse from their mothers and like a deep-seated hatred of their mothers. Also, as a little side note, like many other serial killers, Paul also had some health issues as a baby. He suffered from a form of aphasia due to a lack of oxygen in the brain during birth and was also born with a physical deformity in the palate of his mouth, which wasn't fixed until he had corrective surgery when he was five. So up until then, he couldn't talk at all. He was only able to make like guttural moaning and animal sounds. And for a while after surgery, he had speech impediments and he stuttered, which resulted in him being made fun of. And he wasn't only picked on because of his stutter, but also for his appearance and his clothing. Kids called him smelly. They called him dirty barnyardo, which is like sad for a kid, but we're not going to feel bad for this guy. Oh, wait. I almost forgot that on top of all of this, his father was also caught and charged with being a peeping Tom when Paul was a kid, creeping on some young woman in their neighborhood. So, okay, Paul's mom sucked. His dad was a sick piece of shit. He had health issues as a baby. His house was gross. He was basically neglected. He was a social outcast in school as a child. Like if we put all this shit together, Health issues as a baby, growing up with a sexual predator for a father, neglect and abuse, complete hatred for his mother. Like, are we shocked that this guy ended up being a complete monster? But by high school, Paul seemed to have turned things around a bit, to outsiders anyway. People that knew him in high school remember a good-looking, athletic guy. He dressed well, got good grades, and was well-liked. But it was a different scene at home, and when he did have friends by the house, they remembered his home as being filthy and chaotic. But on the outside, he had his shit together. He was a camp counselor, he had a sales job, and he ended up going to the University of Toronto for accounting. 
like his dad, which I thought was like a little weird at first, but we'll come to learn that the rotten apple didn't fall far from that tree in all fucking aspects. Anyways, even though Paul seemed decent on the outside, he was starting to show a bad side, so to speak. I mean, I think all of him is bad, but he was starting to show some signs of like sexual delinquency. Paul was also caught and reported as being a peeping Tom as a teenager, just like his father. His high school friends recall him having like a fetish for porn and for slasher films, and they said he treated girls like shit and that he liked rough sex. His girlfriends in university all experienced this, rough sex and abuse. And then randomly, he got into smuggling cigarettes from the U.S. to Canada through the Niagara Falls border. At first, it seemed like he did it for extra money, but even after he got a good job in accounting, he still smuggled. It was more about the risk and probably the power he felt when he got away with it. This guy was the Jekyll and Hyde, living two lives. There was the presentable, respectable, good-looking Paul on the outside, but the deviant, dangerous Paul on the inside was starting to come out. But this side hustle of his had him traveling from Niagara Falls to Toronto quite frequently, which unfortunately gave him the opportunity to get to know the area pretty well, the area which would later become his hunting ground. Now, Carla's upbringing was a lot better than Paul's. Actually, from what I could find, there was nothing substantial or traumatic that stood out at all. It seemed like she had a pretty normal childhood. Born on May 4th, 1970, Carla Leanne Homoka was the oldest of three girls. Her sisters were Lori and Tammy. Lori was one year younger than Carla and Tammy was five years younger. They lived in St. Catharines, Ontario, a pretty little city right between Niagara Falls and Toronto. All three of those girls were powerhouses, blonde hair beauties. They were popular, well-liked, full of potential. But Carla had a bit of a bossy streak, a mean streak, like big time Regina George vibes. High school friends of hers remember her as being dominating. She was the leader of her friends group and they had a little club called the EDC, which stood for Exclusive Diamond Club. And their goals were to find rich older men to give them diamonds, get married, and live happily ever after. And Carla kinda committed to this goal. Her friends from that time remember her being obsessed with boys, always having boyfriends and guys around, and it got to the point where that was all she cared about. She stopped caring as much about school, her grades started to drop a little bit, and she started to rebel, going against that good girl image she had. Like, she dyed her hair, painted her nails black, listened to heavy music, you know, typical rebellious girl shit. She got in some fights with her parents. Again, though, they seemed like your typical parent versus teenage girl fights. Nothing too serious. Although, when she turned 17, she did take off on a plane to visit a guy against her parents' wishes and got in some trouble for that. But besides that, she still pretty much stayed out of trouble. So even though she was starting to display a bit of a bad girl image, most people that knew her still saw her as the bubbly, outgoing Carla that they'd always known. She did hold down a part-time job at a pet store throughout high school and wanted to become a veterinarian. And it was actually through this job, while at a pet store convention in Toronto, when Carla was just 17, that she met Paul Bernardo. So, it's October 1987, and Carla is staying at a hotel in Toronto for this convention with co-workers. 
Carla and her friend are staying in one hotel room while their older co-workers are in another. The girls decide to sneak down to a pub in the night, and Paul, who's 23 at the time, and a friend, happen to be at the same pub. Paul, who we'll learn has a thing for younger girls, is immediately attracted to Carla. He approaches her and spends the night wooing her with his charm, good looks, and ambition. He tells her about his career and financial goals, and he is exactly who she's been looking for, an older, successful man. She's captivated, and they spend the night together that first night they meet. This quickly moves into like a fairy tale romance. The following weekend, Paul makes the drive from Scarborough to St. Catharines to visit her, meets her parents and a bunch of her friends, and from then on starts visiting regularly on weekends. When he comes, he has flowers and gifts. She writes him love letters and tells her friends she's met her Prince Charming. Carla's parents like Paul. He's charming, he's polite, and he appears to be an attentive boyfriend. Her friends like Paul, and Carla's sisters love Paul especially her youngest sister, Tammy. So they appear to be this young couple madly in love. They're both attractive, both ambitious. Paul's already a successful accountant, and Carla is now working at a vet clinic and was still planning to become a veterinarian. But these two had like a secret dark side, like their sex life got real dark real fast. Paul was demeaning and dominating, He liked rough sex, and he liked to use derogatory terms like cunt and slut in the bedroom. And not like in a kinky way, these two took it to another level when it came to S&M. And fucking degradation. But like, Carla was right into that shit too, so she seemed perfect for Paul. Where his previous girlfriends had resisted, Carla actually enjoyed and encouraged Paul's like sadistic behavior. Her love letters that were later entered into court documents showed this. She wrote things like, Roses are red, violets are blue, there's nothing more fun than a pervert like you. And for their first Christmas together, just two months after meeting, Carla gave Paul a coupon that read, Upon presentation of this coupon, Carla will perform sick perverted acts upon Paul. These acts may be chosen by the recipient of this coupon. Love, Carla. I tried to do a gross voice, but my mouth just feels nasty, like just repeating her words, especially like knowing what these two end up doing. And I don't know, but I think it's usually a little longer than just two months into dating that you jump right into that kind of shit. But um, anyways, these two are like, they're all, they're all shades of fucked up. So even though Carla basically gave Paul everything he wanted, she wasn't a virgin and she was willing and Paul preferred unwilling virgins. Carla wasn't enough to satiate Paul in his deviant fantasies, and only a few months after he started dating her, he attacked and raped a woman in Scarborough, and got away with it. And this was actually the fourth attack on women in the area that year. But the attacks had been escalating in violence, and this was the first time he successfully penetrated one of his victims. He continued to assault and rape women and get away with it for years. The city was in total fear of this guy back then, but no one knew who he was. Between 1987 and 1990, he sexually assaulted at least 11 girls and women and was dubbed the Scarborough Rapist. 
So here's a little quick rundown on the Scarborough rapist attacks. We're not going to get super into them because there's just so fucking many. But, uh, but yeah. So on May 4th, 1987, he attacked and assaulted his first victim, a 21-year-old. She got a pretty decent look at Paul and his car, and a sketch was made from her recollection, but the picture wasn't released to the public. Just 10 days later, on May 14th, he attacked a second woman, a 19-year-old. In July that year, he attacked another woman and attempted to rape her, but took off when she fought back. Then on December 16th, 1987, this is after he started dating Carla now, he committed his most vicious attack yet and raped a 15-year-old girl. The following day, Toronto Police Services issued a warning to women living in Scarborough, but they still didn't release any sketches of the attacker, and just a few days later, on December 23rd, he raped his fifth victim. And this is when he began to be referred to as the Scarborough Rapist. In April of 1988, he assaulted a 17-year-old girl, his sixth attack. His seventh attack was on an 18-year-old in May of 1988, and his eighth attempted rape was in October of that year. This time, his intended victim fought him off, but not without being stabbed twice by Paul. She was not severely injured, but did require stitches. A month later, in November of 88, he raped an 18-year-old in her own backyard. The day after this attack, the Toronto Metro Police formed a special task force dedicated specifically to sexual assault cases and with catching the Scarborough Rapist. They circulated the composite sketches of the man they were looking for throughout all the surrounding police forces, but still didn't release it to the media. In December 1988 and June of 1989, he attempted to rape two more women, but luckily both were interrupted by witnesses that chased him off. But in August 1989, Paul did not get interrupted, and he raped another woman, his 12th attack and 8th sexual assault. His 9th was in November 1989, this time attacking a 15-year-old that he saw waiting at a bus shelter. And his 10th was in December, in a stairwell of an underground parking lot. The victim was 19. They couldn't catch this guy. He was smart. He stalked his victims. He knew their roots, usually grabbing them after they got off a bus, and he'd attack them from behind, so they didn't always get the best look at him. He'd refer to them in like the same kind of derogatory terms he liked to use in the bedroom with Carla, and he'd like talk to them and make them talk to him. Like, he enjoyed the psychological fucking as much as the physical. He'd even like make them tell him that they loved him and shit. He'd tell them that he was the Scarborough rapist, and he'd take their licenses, so he had a, their names and addresses. And this fucker would tell them that if they told anyone, he'd go to their house and kill them and their families. But many did go to the police. They had reports about what he looked like, things he said, how he talked, what he drove, a white capri. And they had DNA samples on file from the attacks. This is how the cops knew it was the same guy. They were able to determine that they had a serial rapist on their hands. His 11th victim, a 19-year-old, was attacked in May of 1990, but he fucked up this time and she got a really good look at him. She had a vivid recollection of what he looked like. She reported the attack and sat with a sketch artist to come up with a computer-generated photo that actually looked insanely like Paul. And this time, the police didn't hold on to it. Within two days, on May 29th, this computer composite photo was plastered all over the news, on the TV, on the front page of the newspapers, 
and a $150,000 reward was offered for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the Scarborough rapist. The phone lines blew up with calls from people that thought they recognized the man in the picture. And the cops went on the warpath. The task force was following up on hundreds of leads from phone calls, and they were literally going door to door in and around the Scarborough area, asking people if they knew the man in the picture. But they had nothing. The worst part about all of this was that Paul's name came up in their investigations. He was even taken in for questioning. He gave his DNA. Okay, let's rewind and I'll explain. The first time his name was brought to the attention of the police was in January of 1988, so not even a full year after the first attack. And it was brought to the attention of a Sergeant Kevin McNiff when his daughter asked him to meet with her friend Jennifer Galligan. All Sergeant McNiff knew was that she had a problem with an ex-boyfriend, so he agreed to meet her, informally, at a McDonald's. But he was not prepared for what he encountered or heard that day. Jennifer was Paul's girlfriend before Carla, and when she met with McNiff, she was hysterical and rambling. She was just spilling her guts about the abuse that she'd encountered in her relationship with Paul. McNiff listened in shock furiously taking notes and seriously taken aback with some of the horrible things that Jennifer had endured. As she cried, she told him about her last encounter with Bernardo. And I'm going to paraphrase a bit here so you get the gist, the gist of what a piece of shit this guy was. Um, and also I'm going to insert a little trigger warning because I'm going to be quoting her a bit here. But she told McNiff, I was crying and he kept saying, fucking stop crying, bitch. You're giving me a headache. And he kept hitting me and hitting me. And then he took me behind this old factory and said, I'm going to rape you, you fucking cunt. And he ripped my pantyhose and pulled my hair and kept hitting me. And then he was looking for his knife and I ran. And I ran and I ran and he yelled, you fucking slut, when I find you, you're dead. So yeah, there was a lot more um, than that, but you get the idea. Sergeant McNiff was not expecting all of this, and it sounded really familiar. All the cops knew the Scarborough rapist. He was terrorizing the city, and McNiff couldn't help thinking of that case as he listened to Jennifer. The things that she was saying that he said, she had gotten away. She ran through the woods and made it to a friend's house, but they didn't call the police. Um, Jennifer's father told Paul to stay away from his daughter, and Jennifer just avoided him after that, but she was living in terror, constantly looking over her shoulder. She didn't know he had already met his future wife and sadistic match, Carla. So when Jennifer quieted down and uh, calmed down a bit, McNiff assumed that she wanted to press charges. Once he collected himself and brought it up, though, Jennifer said no. She just wanted her money back. Um, Paul owed her about $2,000, but without pressing charges, there wasn't much Sergeant McGniff could do. He did, however, go back to his office and start looking into this Paul Bernardo character, and what he found disturbed him even more, and reinforced his idea that this guy could be the Scarborough rapist. He saw that Paul's name came up in three previous police reports. There have been two reports of assault in March and July of 1986. Both times, the complainant was Jennifer Galligan. Bernardo was never charged, though. Then there was a mischief report in September of 1987, so three months before he met Carla. And this report included Jennifer and another woman. But no charges were laid again. McNiff was starting to think that Bernardo must have a horseshoe up his ass. 
But the similarities between the Scarborough rapist and Paul Bernardo screamed at him, from the locations of the attacks, to the degrading demeanor, the way he talked, and the things he said to his victims, and specifically the white Capri vehicle that both Paul and the Scarborough rapist drove. So, McNiff wrote a five-page report to pass along to the detectives that were in charge of investigating the recent sexual assaults in the area. Unfortunately, and there's a lot of unfortunately's in this case, I feel like I've already said it a lot and I'm probably going to say it a lot more, but unfortunately, he accidentally dated it January 5th, 1987 instead of 1988 and it got misfiled. Remember too now, this is in the late 80s and digital files were not a thing yet, guys. Like this was all paperwork, like piles and piles of paperwork to sort and go through. So, I mean, it just sucks because this guy was on to something early on, but yeah, nothing came of it. The second way Paul's name had come up was from people literally recognizing him from the picture on the news. Detective Constable Steve Irwin, who was on the sexual assault task force, had specifically received two calls from people that said the picture looked just like someone they knew. A bank teller had called and said it looked exactly like a customer, and provided them with Paul's name and address. The other call was a little more personal. Tina was the wife of one of Paul's friends. Tina had called in not only to say that the picture looked like Paul Bernardo, but also that she knew Paul and wouldn't be surprised if it was him doing these things. She also mentioned that Paul had been called in already, related to one of the rapes way back in December of 87, but that he had never been interviewed. And remember, it's now 1990. This is what really made Detective Irwin curious enough to follow up. And you have to understand, they were getting hundreds of calls and it was hard to know which ones to follow up with. They just didn't have the manpower to like thoroughly investigate every single claim that came in. But Erwin now definitely wanted to bring in Tina and her husband to ask them more questions and learn more about this Paul guy. And learn he did. Tina and her husband Alex went to the sexual assault squad room to talk to Detective Irwin and a partner of his on September 26th, 1990. Alex did most of the talking. He's the one that really knew Paul. He brought pictures of Paul in for the detectives. He'd known Paul since childhood, but his brother Van was one of Paul's closest friends. Van actually ended up being the best man at Paul and Carla's wedding. But yeah, they had lived and grown up across the street from the Bernardos. He told them about Paul's home life as a kid, um, how he suspected that Paul used to beat the shit out of his ex-girlfriend Jennifer. He mentioned Paul's new girlfriend, Carla, but also said that Paul cheated on her all the time, that he always had multiple girls on the go. Alex also said that Paul treated women like shit, and he would brag about his dominating rough sex life, and that he had even mentioned raping women. Some of Alex's stories about Paul were so extreme and so far-fetched, detectives didn't really know what to make of him or of everything he was telling them. But he again reiterated that Paul was supposed to be questioned about one of the rapes in 87, but never was. That was enough to have Detective Irwin pull the case file from the sexual assault in December of 87 that Paul was apparently called in for. In that file, he found Sergeant McNiff's incorrectly dated report and found the descriptions of Paul's behaviors by Jennifer Galligan to match what they had been told about him from Alex and Tina and matched what they had come to learn about the Scarborough rapist. Furthermore, both Tina and Alex and Jennifer confirmed that Paul drove a white Capri, 
the same car the sexual assault victim had reported. She was attacked only a few blocks from where Paul lived, and the sketch that was composed in her file strongly resembled the most current image and the pictures that they had of Paul. He decided they needed to talk to Mr. Bernardo. Unfortunately, another unfortunately, the sexual assault squad had a lot on their plate, and they didn't get around to paying a visit to Paul until the end of November, almost two months later. He wasn't home, but they left their card, and Paul, this arrogant fucker, drove himself to the police station to be interviewed that same day. And it's safe to say that he won them over. Paul was charismatic and charming when he wanted to be, and this fucker, who had gotten away with raping women for three years now, he knew when to turn it on. He was interviewed for 35 minutes. He was nervous, but cooperative. He told me he was engaged to a woman named Carla and planned to move to St. Catharines to be closer to her soon. He said they had been together for three years, and while he couldn't specifically remember what he was doing the night of the sexual assault in 87, he assumed he was probably with Carla. By this time, he had quit his accounting job and relied solely on the money he made doing side jobs, like smuggling cigarettes, but he told the officers that he and Carla planned on starting their own business. When they asked him why he thought his name may have come up in the Scarborough rapist case, Paul admitted that he thought he looked like the drawing, that they both had that baby face. He said his friends teased him about it, but he didn't find it funny. He was a good guy. He had a degree from the University of Toronto, and he would never hurt a woman and definitely didn't need to rape them. He always had lots of girlfriends. The detectives asked if he would provide a DNA sample and reminded him of his rights that suspects did not have to provide blood samples, but Paul offered. In fact, he said he was more than happy to do it. The similarities between the Scarborough rapist and Paul Bernardo that the detectives saw before just seemed like strange coincidences now. Bernardo didn't seem angry. He was happy. He didn't hate women. He loved them. He was open and forthcoming. He didn't seem secretive. He was polite. He was soft-spoken. The detectives couldn't picture this well-educated young man being the sexual predator that they'd been looking for. He provided a swab and a blood sample and left their office. And that was that. He was off their radar. And those samples he gave? They would end up sitting on file for two years before even being tested. And when they finally checked them, they definitely matched the DNA samples taken from victims of the Scarborough rapist. But it was way too late. Just one month after Paul's interview, Paul and Carla together would rape and kill their first victim, Carla's own little sister, Tammy. Before we get into that, let's just go over our timeline here. So this shit all starts in the year 1987. The Scarborough rapist attacks begin in May. The final attack on Jennifer Gallivan is that summer, and Paul, who's 23 at the time, meets 17-year-old Carla in October. Now fast forward to 1990. The Scarborough rapist has now attacked at least 11 women. Paul becomes a person of interest in September, and in November he's interviewed by detectives, gives DNA samples, and is left to carry on his merry way. Paul and Carla are now 26 and 20. They've been together three years, and all this time, they've been displaying this perfect couple facade. They're madly in love and planning their future. By December 1990, they are engaged and planning their wedding for the following June. 
and Paul has quit his job and is living off his side hustles and is about to move to St. Catharines to be closer to Carla. In reality, he also probably wanted to get out of Scarborough after his interview, but yeah, it's all working out for Paul, it seems. Um, Carla's friends and family love him, especially, as I mentioned before, Carla's youngest sister, Tammy. So Tammy looks up to her big sister, Carla, and she adores Paul. She loves spending time with them both. She has a bit of a schoolgirl crush on her sister's older, handsome boyfriend, but this innocent crush was probably fueled by the attention that Paul gave her because, unfortunately, Paul also had a thing for Tammy. So let's talk about Tammy. Tammy Lynn was a New Year's baby, born January 1st, 1975. In December of 1990, she's 15 years old and in grade 10. She's super popular and well-liked. She was described as bubbly, outgoing, fun, and extremely athletic. While soccer was her favorite sports, she participated in a ton of them. She also did track and field and ran cross country. She had good grades and she was just a beautiful girl. She had so much potential. Ugh, this case makes me so fucking mad. But yeah, okay, let's just get right into it. So, yeah, okay, so this is so fucked up, you guys. So, like, by now, Paul's thing for Tammy isn't even a secret to Carla. In fact, it's right out there, and Carla goes right along with it. And it's not a thing. It's a fucking disgusting, sick perversion. Um, but, like, for example... Oh, my God, this makes me so sick. But, like, Paul liked to peep at Tammy, like, through her bedroom window. And apparently, Carla had even broke Tammy's blinds for Paul to make it easier for him to fucking peer at her through her window, like her own fucking sister. And it gets way worse. Paul would sneak into Tammy's room and jerk off when she slept, like in the Homoka home, like their parents were sleeping in another room. Um, Carla and Paul liked having sex in Tammy's bed. Carla would even dress in Tammy's clothes and talk and act like her during sex. Paul would even look at pictures of Tammy when him and Carla had sex. Like, what the fuck? And Carla played right along. Like, she fucking enjoyed it too. And we know this because this was around the time that Paul bought himself a camcorder to record videos. And back then, this was a big new thing, being able to record videos. Um, it wasn't like it is now. And Paul was obsessed with that thing. And he took videos of everything. So many of their disgusting sex acts were captured on film. It was no secret to Carla that Paul wished she was a virgin, and it definitely wasn't a secret that he wanted to take Tammy's virginity. He told Carla all the time. So Carla, because she's fucking repulsive, decides that for Christmas that year, she is going to give Tammy's virginity to Paul. She's going to do that by drugging her sister. Paul and Carla have actually already experimented with drugging Tammy. They had tried crushing Valium in Tammy and one of her friend's drinks over the summer, which had done nothing, and they'd recently tried putting a bigger dose of crushed Valium in Tammy's spaghetti one evening. She did pass out, and Paul tried to have sex with her, but she started to stir and wake up. So they needed something stronger. And now Carla's figured it out. They will use Halcyon this time. So Halcyon is a sleep aid. Um, it's a prescription drug. Carla's mom has taken it and Carla knows that it works well. She does some research and thinks it will do the trick and help knock Tammy out. 
and working as a vet assistant at an animal clinic gives Carla an easy and convenient way to get her hand on the prescription pills. Part of her job at the clinic is to place orders at the pharmacy across the street, purchase and pick up the prescriptions. And sedatives are often used on cats and dogs, so the order wouldn't be too out of the ordinary. But Carla also knows that knocking Tammy out isn't enough. In order for them to do what they wanted to do to her, Carla would need to make sure that Tammy wouldn't wake up. Halothane is an inhalant anesthetic that Carla knew all about. It was her job to administer halothane to pets at the clinic before surgeries. Since Carla was also in charge of maintaining the clinic's drug dispensary, she could easily get her hands on a bottle or two. And by December now, she's had two ready to go in her bathroom cupboard since November. It's now the day before Christmas Eve 1990. Uh, Paul arrives at the Homoka home excited for the holidays, crushed halcyon and camcorder in hand. He documents almost the entire evening with the family, and these videos are so horrific to watch because like they look like normal family Christmas videos. Like everybody is happy. They're just having a good time, watching movies, having some drinks. But meanwhile, these two fuckers like have this whole plan to brutally assault Tammy, Carla's baby sister. Oh, I'm, I'm really trying to leave my take on this case until the end of the story, but like I have two little sisters and this just like, I can't even, ah. Okay, continue. So Carla and Paul are drugging Tammy's drinks with the crushed halcyon and feeding her drinks. And her parents had said it was okay for her to have a couple. Um, she was only 15, but it was Christmas and she was with her big sister and her boyfriend, you know, people they thought they could trust. But Carla's parents and Lori head to bed and Tammy wants to stay up and watch a movie in the basement with Carla and Paul. Uh, that's where Paul usually slept when he stayed overnight. It was like a rec room, couches, a TV, and all that. And they're hanging out down there, and they're just feeding Tammy laced drinks until she finally passes out. Once she does, they poke her, make sure she's out cold, and then Carla gets the halothane, and Paul gets the camcorder. And these two fuckers raped and sodomized this fucking 15-year-old and recorded some of it. At some point during the assault, they stopped filming, and shortly after that, things got even worse. Tammy started to vomit, and because she was drugged, like, completely unconscious, she started choking on that vomit. Um, obviously, Paul and Carla were panicking, trying to clear her airways, but she stopped breathing. They quickly moved her to Carla's room to put clothes on her. Paul was starting mouth-to-mouth -mouth while Carla got rid of the evidence and flushed the halcyon and, and got rid of the halothane. And then Carla called 911. They didn't even wake Carla's parents. Her parents were woken by lights and sirens as the police and paramedics arrived at their house. Tammy was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. She just stopped breathing, Carla and Paul said. Mr. and Mrs. Mocha followed the ambulance to the hospital with two senior police officers who left a rookie cop, uh, Constable David Weeks, who'd only been on the force for like seven weeks, at the Homoka home to talk to Paul, Carla, and Lori. He asked if they'd been freebasing cocaine, but Paul assured him that there'd been no drugs involved. But Weeks found the situation to be super suspicious, and he wondered what in the world then could have caused the giant burns on Tammy's face. You see, Tammy had burns all over her face, actually. Halothane burns. Because halothane, 
When it's used properly as an anesthetic, is usually administered through a face mask mixed with oxygen. But Carla had been holding a soaked rag directly on Tammy's face, which would have caused those burns. She had a few on and around her nose and lips and a giant one, like the size of your palm, the palm of your hand, on her cheek. Actually, and it's horrific to look at, but if you wanted to see what I'm talking about, there is actually a post-mortem photo of Tammy's face online. Like a quick Google search will bring it up. And I'm not saying to go look at it because it's, it's awful, but if you do look at it, you will be absolutely baffled at how it wasn't fucking investigated further. It's insane. So while they're there, Constable Weeks gets the phone call that Tammy has died, and he's the one to tell Carla, Paul, and Lori. Lori runs upstairs to call her boyfriend, and Weeks goes to check on her. And when he comes back down, Carla is doing laundry. She's washing the blankets Tammy had been sick on. He stops her and pulls them out, but they're already wet, and the vomit's mostly rinsed away, along with any evidence that may have been on it. The girls were crying, and Paul was, like, screaming and hitting himself in the head. Um, when the senior detectives came back to the house to pick them all up and take them to the police station for questioning. At the police station, they left Paul and Carla waiting, sitting together for over an hour. So, like, you know, lots of time to get their fucking stories straight before they separated them and interviewed them. And, of course, their stories were exactly the same. That they had been watching TV downstairs when all of a sudden Tammy stopped breathing. That the burn marks on her face were from when they dragged her across the hall to Carla's bedroom where the lighting was better. Carla's parents, when interviewed, referred to Paul as their son, who was about to marry Carla and was such a great guy. So no one was suspicious of him. The 911 call was made at 1.25 a.m. Tammy was pronounced dead at the hospital at 2.03 a.m. And by 6 a.m., Paul and Carla were headed home. When they got home, they had a bit of a panic when they realized that they couldn't find the videotape. Paul had left it in the camera, and someone had moved the camera to Carla's room. There was even also a videotape sitting right on Carla's nightstand. But obviously, no one had bothered to check the camera or the videotapes. Later in court, Carla would say that Paul had moved the camera and hidden the tapes. Paul said that Carla did. But either way, the tape stayed hidden. Now, the situation surrounding Tammy's death, like the fact that she was home with family, that may have been why things were missed in the autopsy. Maybe if she was found on the side of the road, a more thorough examination would have been done. Or perhaps the holiday season had the autopsy rushed. Who knows, but things were obviously missed. Drug tests were done, but they were for recreational drugs. She wasn't tested for pharmaceutical sedatives or anesthetics. Her genitals were checked, but not careful enough to detect signs of rape, which would have been there if they were looking for that, but they weren't. And the burns on Tammy's face? Well, the pathologist concluded they must have been caused by the acid in her vomit. By the afternoon of December 24th, the death certificate had been issued. Tammy's death was ruled accidental. The official cause of death was death by aspiration of vomit. Her funeral was held December 27th, just six days before what would have been her 16th birthday. Now, you would think, after drugging, raping, and fucking killing your own fucking little sister, you'd think you'd start to unravel a little bit. But nope, not Carla. She had a wedding to plan, and a man to please. 
and they had no fucking remorse. In fact, Carla continued to dress in Tammy's clothes during sex with Paul after they fucking killed her. She would fucking pretend to be Tammy and thank Paul for taking her virginity. Like, after they brutally raped and murdered her sister. And they got this kind of shit all on videotape, too. These sick, stupid fucks taped everything. And it didn't take long at all before these monsters were hunting for their next victim. By the time they were married in June, only six months after killing Tammy, they would drug and rape more women and kidnap, torture, and murder a 14-year-old girl. But we're going to get into all of that and more in the next episode. So yeah, thanks for checking this out. I hope you liked it and I hope you check out the next one where I'm going to cover the rest of their horrific crimes. We'll talk about how they were caught, um, the trial and how all that shit went down and what's happened since and where they are now and all that. And then, of course, you'll get my take on murder as I share some of my personal opinions about this case. So stay tuned. Thanks. Bye.